Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. In this episode, we'll discuss post-op cardiac complications following non-cardiac surgery in patients with untreated OSA. Our correspondent, Dr. Dennis Ockley, talks with Dr. Francis Chung, Professor of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine at the University of Toronto. She is best known for creating the Stop Bang Score, named one of the top 25 most important articles in the history of anesthesia by the British Journal of Anesthesia. Dr. Chung is an author of one of the first studies to look at the relationship between unrecognized OSA and 30-day cardiovascular complications after major non-cardiac surgery. This discussion will review that landmark investigation published in JAMA. I'll turn it over to Dr. Ockley to get us started. We're very pleased to have Dr. Chung here to discuss the study and answer some questions that we have. So the first question I would would like to ask is focusing on the testing that was utilized for the study. So objective testing was utilized, uh, which is not unique to the study, but is uh, definitely a strong point of the study. And the tool used to identify whether obstructive sleep apnea is present or not was a home sleep apnea test. It's known that these devices can underestimate the severity of obstructive sleep apnea. And since the association between postoperative cardiac outcomes is only seen in patients with severe obstructive sleep apnea, those with a respiratory event index more than 30, I'm curious, Dr. Chung, as to whether you think this impacted the association seen between sleep apnea and the postoperative outcomes. And then also, a second part to that question was the home sleep apnea tested used a desaturation of 3% to define uh, hypopneas in the study, whereas the oxygen oximetry studies performed postoperatively use a 4% desaturation and curious about the reasoning behind that. Um, thanks very much, Dennis, uh, for inviting me to participate in this podcast. In this study, we used a portable device, which is Apnea Link Plus, and there is no EEG monitoring, which truly indicate the duration of sleep. Therefore, I think we cannot track whether the patient were really asleep during the measurement, and this may have underestimated the severity of sleep apnea. In this study, we have a high proportion of patients who have sleep apnea, AHI 5 or greater, 68% and 19% are moderate sleep apnea, and 11% are severe sleep apnea. Now, in our inclusion criteria, we decide to choose the patient who are over 45 years old, undergoing major non-cardiac surgery. And these patients have to have one or more risk factor for post-op cardiovascular event. And that is, they have a history of coronary artery disease, heart failure, stroke, or TRI, diabetes requiring treatment, or renal impairment. So essentially, um, we have very high-risk patients, and this may have accounted for the high proportions of sleep apnea in our patients. Now, in this study, we did use a high-resolution pulse oximeter wristwatch to monitor the oxyhemoglobin to collect the ODI data at the pre-op night and also for three-night post-op. We used a software called the Profiles, 
which give us the ODI 4%. Actually, for this study, it did take us a long time to get funding and to collect the data in eight hospitals in five countries. And we actually, at that time, when we did the protocol, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine still consider ODI 4% or 3%. So we decided to use um, ODI 4% in our profile software. That is the reason. Okay, that certainly makes sense. And I laud all the authors for undertaking this study. Obviously, this was a very rigorous and difficult study to perform. Um, I'd like to move on to discuss um, some outcomes and the questions or some questions related to that. Um, so the first is that uh, for primary outcome, use a composite outcome. Although many of the individual outcomes upon uh, secondary analysis remain significant, including myocardial injury, heart failure, new onset AFib, and cardiac death were all linked to uh, severe obstructive sleep apnea. So some questions in this regard are, uh, first, if you have any concerns about using a cardi uh, composite outcome as the primary outcome, and then do you think if along those lines, a larger study, although the study was quite large, but would a larger study improve the chances of finding any more significant individual outcomes? And then the final question regarding the outcome uh, measures is if you, uh, your thoughts on the significance of myocardial injury as defined by cardiac troponin elevation as an outcome. Um. Yes, um, this is a question um, that has been raised by others as well. Um, our primary outcome was a composite of myocardial injury, heart failure, thromboembolism event, atrial fibrillation, stroke, and cardiac death. And the reason we use a composite outcome is post-op cardiac event are rare events. Um, when we did the sample size calculation, we estimated that we will have 4% of composite event. And in spite of that, when we did the post-hop analysis, we did find that severe OSA was associated with 13-fold increase in cardiac death, and myocardial injury is 80% higher and congestive heart failure is almost sevenfold higher, and atrial fibrillation is fourfold higher. Now, there has been studies that indicate severe OSA per se are associated with chronically elevated troponin, which may be independent of myocardial ischemic event. What we did is we did a post-hoc analysis and a sensitivity analysis. We replaced myocardial injury with myocardial infarction in the primary composite outcome. And we did find that the severe OSA remained independently associated with post-hoc cardiovascular complication with a hazard ratio of two. And severe OSA per se was associated with myocardial infarction with the adjusted hazard ratio of 3.2. So essentially, even if we don't use myocardial um, injury, the troponin, we would still have positive uh, finding. Um, also, another aspect, although the um, study is on cardiovascular outcome, we did find OSA was also associated with increased chance of infection 
especially wound infection, unplanned tracheal intubation, post-op lung infection, and readmission to the ICU. Yeah, that's interesting that the latter outcomes you mentioned have been seen in uh, other studies, but again, this is a prospective, uh, um, well-controlled multicenter study really validating those findings. Um, I'd like to ask another question about the outcomes. It appears when looking at the display um, of when these outcomes occur that the majority did occur in the first few days following surgery. Um, your, your primary outcome was measured at 30 days, but can you comment on roughly what day the association between severe obstructive sleep apnea and the cardiac outcomes became significant, and how do you think this should impact postoperative monitoring? Um, the majority of the outcome occur on the first three days. We did not find a significant difference between which post-op day is associated with the uh, cardiac outcome. In the literature, the opioid-related respiratory depression mostly occur in the first 24 hours of surgery. Several um, meta-analysis and systematic review and uh, prospective study have shown about 80% of the events of respiratory depressions, um, they do occur on the first 24 hours. Majority of them occur within the 12 hours and out of the 12 hours, the most of the event occurred within the first six hours. But these are primary adverse outcome. Um, so I'm not sure whether cardiovascular monitoring per se would have impact on cardiovascular outcome. I believe strongly that patients with severe OSA may need optimal preparation and management before major surgery um, in order to prevent adverse outcome. Let's pause for a moment before we learn more about this groundbreaking study. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. The Virtual Sleep 2020 schedule is now available at sleepmeeting.org. Review the entire listing of sessions offered and begin your plan to see yourself at sleep. With over 50 sessions to enjoy and access to all content until August 1st, 2021, Sleep 2020 is sure to be the best conference you attend this year. See the schedule and register now at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Let's return to our discussion with Dr. Dennis Ockley and Dr. Francis Chung. It appeared that a substantial portion of the patients were on oxygen postoperatively. And I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are and how that might have affected the association between postoperative hypoxemia, you know, seen on the oximetry and the cardiac outcomes. And then also along these lines, did you analyze the data stratified by oxygen used to see if the association between postoperative post-operative hypoxemia and outcomes was more robust than those that were not on supplemental oxygen? So um, at the present, the standard of practice in most of the hospital is to give supplemental oxygen therapy to patients when oxygen saturations in the PACU or in the ward is equal to or less than 92%. So automatically with the standardized order, the nurse, nurses um, on, in the PACU or in the ward, they would give oxygen therapy to these patients. 
So a high proportion of patients were given oxygen supplementation. In this study, 70% of the patient received oxygen therapy on the first night, 40% on the second night, and 20% on the third night. And those patients who have no sleep apnea, actually they less um, number of these patients receive or require oxygen therapy. Interestingly, those patients who have severe OSA, the percentage of patients actually receive much higher um, oxygen therapy proportionally. Interestingly, the study was blinded. The surgeons, nor the anesthetists, nor the healthcare team are aware of the finding of the apnea link when the study was going on. Um, due to the small number of patients that are not on oxygen therapy, we could not find an association between post-op hypoxemia and cardiovascular outcome. Now, due to the oxygen therapy, the ODI in patients with sleep apnea, um, because high proportion of them are given oxygen, actually they improved, so they were reduced during the first two nights. There were less oxygen desaturation. The ODI returned to normal on the third night after surgery. Um, however, despite a substantial decrease in oxygen, um, ODI, oxygen desaturation index, with the oxygen therapy in patients who have OSA, supplemental oxygen did not modify the association between OSA and post-op cardiovascular events. So there were no differences in ODI, lowest oxyhemoglobin saturation, and maximum heart rate in those patients with and without post-op cardiovascular events. Interestingly, we find that the mean cumulative duration, that is CT80, during the first three post-op nights were much higher, 23 minutes, when they were compared with patients who have no cardiovascular outcome, uh, 10 minutes. So this was um, very significant. Um, the period of CT80 was almost double in those who have cardiovascular event. I do believe that we may need more intervention in these patients or prevent the severe desaturation in order to avoid this event. That's very uh, interesting. Another factor that could affect the association is also opioid use in the uh, perioperative setting. Um, in this study, you did not find an association, however, between opioid use and uh, cardiac outcomes, but the opioid dose, dose specifically was not uh, reported in the study. Um, I'm wondering if you have information on the opioid dose from these patients following their surgery and any information on whether the amount of opioid that they may have received could have affected the outcomes? In the study, we did not document the doses of the opioid um, in the post-op period. We only document the opioid that were used in the, um, in the operation during anesthesia. So um, in the post-op period, we only document whether opioid was used, whether PCA opioid was used, yes or no. And we also document whether non-opioid dose was used. So the, we were not able to evaluate the dose relationship between opioid doses 
and adverse post-op outcome. Well, it certainly makes sense that uh, they could play a role in the respiratory events. I guess we'll have to wait and see about the cardiac events um, in terms of the dosing. Um, another question I had was, you also collected information on uh, risk stratifying these patients using the STOP-BANG questionnaire, which you had developed um, preoperatively, in addition to doing the objective testing. And you did find an association between uh, risk stratification for obstructive sleep apnea by STOP-BANG score. Do you think that's sufficient enough in place of objective testing to identify high-risk patients? Um. Based on the stop bank's risk score, um, a score of zero to two indicate low risk. A score of three to four indicate moderate risk of sleep apnea, and a score of five to eight high risk of sleep apnea. And we actually found that 26% were rated as high risk of sleep apnea, 53% at intermediate risk of sleep apnea, and 21% as low risk of sleep apnea. Um, we actually find that high-risk patients were significantly associated with increased rate of primary outcome. Um, the adjusted hazard ratio is 70%, and myocardial injury significant, ICU um, re-emission was also significant. Those patients who had intermediate risk patients they were associated with increased ICU re-emission re and wound infections. Now, the high stop bang score have only moderate prediction of severe OSA. The sensitivity is 58%, the specificity is 78%, and the C-index is only 0.71. Um, so, um, it is only modest correlation with high risk. However, in location where sleep monitoring is not available, the stop bank score may offer a potential role in pre-op assessment for sleep apnea, enabling more effective identification and triage of high-risk patients. Great, that certainly makes sense. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this study was a large multi-center study, but it was performed entirely outside of the United States. And the majority of the subjects were Chinese, a little over half. How do you think this would impact generalizability um, for the population of the United States? And then particularly along the lines uh, that this patient population, the average BMI was just under 30. And um, so how do you think uh, the results may be altered when looking at a more obese patient population? Um, the study was performed in Canada, Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. And 55% um, of the patients in the study were Chinese, 15% are Caucasian, 16% are Malays, and 13% are Indian. Um, the Chinese do have a lower BMI, and also their craniofacial anatomy are different compared with Caucasian patients. So it is not clear how this dif these differences might influence outcome. Um, however, um, the WHO identified BMI 27 as the cutoff being obese. Um, in our study, our BMI is around 28. So therefore, 
um, the BMI in this study may be equivalent to BMI 35 in the North American population. Okay, um, that sounds uh, yeah, very interesting. So I have another question for you. I know this study was really geared towards looking at obstructive sleep apnea and how it associates and possibly as a causal factor for postoperative cardiovascular events. And the study was not designed to look at how interventions may help to reduce um, those adverse events. But what are your thoughts about uh, the use of perioperative CPAP or oxygen and then turning back to what we discussed briefly earlier, um, enhanced um, monitoring for these yeah. patients? Um, this study, um, we have found that these patients um, who have cardiovascular events have much longer duration of severe oxyhemoglobin desaturation, less than 80%. Um, for periopsy PEP use, potentially it is possible um, to actually intervene. Um, we did publish a RCT trial in anesthesiology in 2013. In this study, we were able to enroll 177 patients with newly diagnosed sleep apnea, and we gave um, APAP to these patients three days pre-op and then three days post-op. Um, we were able to reduce the AHI index. Um, However, a lot of the patients were not compliant with the CPAP. We, were, we had a high dropout of patients who participate in the study. And second, only 26 to 48% of these patients who were using the CPAP, they were using for more than four hours. So it's a very low CPAP for more than four hours during the post-op night. The other thing is um, post-op monitoring may not be effective to prevent post-op cardiovascular adverse event. As suggested by your editorial in JAMA, cardiovascular complications present a major concern after surgery in patients with undiagnosed sleep apnea. And we may have to focus on detecting occult cardiovascular disease that are commonly associated with sleep apnea, uh, such as um, pulmonary hypertension, as well as coronary artery disease and cerebrovascular diseases, and these detections may be warranted, as this patient may have higher risk um, of post-op cardiovascular complications. I agree. I think we really need to be uh looking at that aspect of it as well and um, really trying to determine what we can do now that uh, we have this information to help these patients out. So my final question to you is that this is a really remarkable study. Again, large multi-center. Um, do you think it's powerful enough at this point to really say there's no longer equipoise regarding the association of severe obstructive sleep apnea and postoperative cardiac outcomes and uh, further studies that are uh, of this nature probably are not necessary? Um, I think our study is large enough and we are very happy with the result. Uh, I, I think it's a definitive study. An interesting point in this study is that there are four factors that are independent risk factor for post-op cardiovascular event. And the four factors we find in the study is age, 
uh, renal impairment, peripheral vascular disease, and sleep apnea. And we did the population attributable risk and sleep apnea account for 22% of the post-op cardiovascular risk. Age, the elderly, is 16%. Renal impairment is 9%, and peripheral vascular disease is 8%. Now, sleep apnea is a disease or a syndrome um, that is largely undiagnosed in the general population as patients are aging and more patients are coming for surgery or major surgery, we do believe that these patients should receive the same attention as other comorbidities such as hypertension and diabetes. In these patients, the anesthesiologist and the surgeon and the healthcare team do optimize these patients before the patient undergoing surgery. I do think that we need advocate actually to say patients who have severe OSA, probably they deserve to have optimized pre-op screening and optimized preparations and management so that we can reduce the post-op morbidity and mortality. Well, hopefully this paper will go a long way towards raising awareness and uh, encourage perioperative providers to strongly consider evaluating for or at least identifying obstructive sleep apnea in their patients to really optimize their care and, and help them safely pass through the uh, operative arena. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Chung very much for uh, discussing this article with us and uh, providing her insights and thoughts on a very important topic. And we look forward to um, more work in this area. And um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Dr. Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.